Well, I'm glad to be here tonight, uh, like I said, and, and I'm thrilled to be able to lead you in a few minutes of Bible study. We've really got a long way to go, so I wanted to just jump right into it uh, as we look at the Sermon on the Mount, at least one passage, one verse from this amazing sermon. And uh, let me just remind you, if you're still kind of turning to Matthew chapter 5, really what it's all about. What you'll find in Matthew chapter 4, actually, toward the end of the chapter, in verse 23, it says Jesus went throughout Galilee, and when He went throughout Galilee, He was preaching the gospel of the kingdom. That really sets the stage for what the Sermon on the Mount is all about. Jesus is preaching the kingdom. That is, He's beginning His earthly ministry here, and He's announcing that the kingdom of God has finally arrived. Everything that the prophet said was going to come, Uh, Everything that the Old Testament pointed forward to when God would break into human history through through His chosen servant, the Messiah, and He would establish His spiritual kingdom, that time has finally come. And so what Jesus is doing is He's going around preaching the kingdom. He's making that announcement. He's inviting people to come into the kingdom, to recognize the sovereignty of God, uh, to place themselves under His sovereignty, Uh, to become one of his subjects. Uh, But in order to do that, they need to understand something about the demands of being a subject of the king. Uh, What's living in the kingdom of God supposed to be like? Uh, What are the expectations that the king has of me? Uh, What are my responsibilities? We need to know that. And so that's what the Sermon on the Mount really is all about. It explains what life in the kingdom is supposed to look like. If you really want to understand what you are called to be as a child of God, then you need to just immerse yourself in the Sermon on the Mount. Now, when I think about the Sermon on the Mount, one of my my favorite writers of all time, a man by the name of C.S. Lewis, and some of you are probably familiar with Lewis, Uh, Lewis probably did more to uh, convert intellectuals uh, in the 20th century to the God of the Bible than than probably any other person of his time. He was a a professor of Renaissance uh, literature at Cambridge University uh, in England. Uh, He was once an avowed atheist, and uh, he eventually came to believe in the God of the Bible and uh, came to believe that the Bible was what it claimed to be, the Word of God. And, and he used uh, the gifts that God had given him to convince other people uh, uh, that, uh, that the Bible is what it claimed to be, and that God is real, and that Jesus was who He claimed to be, and who the Bible claims Him to be, and that is His Son. Uh, but one of the interesting things, and Lewis had an interesting way of putting some things, he was accused once of not liking the Sermon on the Mount. And, uh, and I really like his response to that. He just, he just was as transparent as could be, which is very typical of him. He said, of course I don't like the Sermon on the Mount. I don't like the Sermon on the Mount at all. I mean, uh, why would I like the Sermon on the Mount? Uh, you, you won't like the Sermon on the Mount unless you like getting in, uh, hit in the face with a sledgehammer. And that's a pretty good description of the Sermon on the Mount. It is a spiritual sledgehammer. Because when we look at our lives, when we read about what life in the kingdom is supposed to look like in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, 
Man, we really walk away, if we're really honest, we really walk away realizing just how far we fall short of what God calls us to be. That we're not even close to where we need to be. And we become so thankful for the incredible mercy, grace, and patience of God. Uh, now with that in mind, let's take a look at this, little, this first section of the Sermon on the Mount, probably the most familiar section that we call the Beatitudes. And I've been asked to talk about verse 8. Uh, in these Beatitudes, uh, in verse 8, Jesus says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Now let me say something first about the word blessed or blessed. Uh, it is a word that uh, is often translated different ways. Um, and, and, and I think the best way to understand it is, uh, and I think this is really important for understanding what Jesus is trying to get across to us. Uh, this particular word uh, carries with it the idea of being in a fortunate position. That's the idea. In a favored position. And so when we read, go through these Beatitudes and we read, blessed are, blessed are, blessed are, uh, one of the best things that you can do is just substitute in your own mind the word fortunate. Fortunate. And the reason that we're fortunate is because uh, if these attitudes are within us, if we pursue these attitudes and we cultivate the growth of these attitudes within us, we're in a favored position with God. Another word, uh, way the word is often used is to be in an enviable position. We are in an enviable position. When we have fellowship with God, it is a wonderful place to be. It's the greatest place to be. And so that's what Jesus really is trying to say. If you want to be in a favored position with God, then you need to pursue these attitudes, these dispositions. And with that in mind, he says in verse 8, uh, blessed or fortunate are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Now let's talk a little bit about the heart. Throughout Scripture, the heart is used, often used in a figurative sense to represent the inner person. And when we're talking about the inner person, we're talking about attitudes, we're talking about the way we think, we're talking about our motives, uh, we're talking, thinking about the thinking process within us, we're thinking about the will. And so when he's talking about the heart, he's talking about that inner man. And the heart is the key to the whole person. We know that. Who we are, it all boils down to that inner person within us. It all boils down to the thinking processes. It all boils down to the will. It all boils down to, to our consciousness. It, it boils down to our desires. It boils down to the, uh, to the attitudes that reside deep within us as a person. I want you to take a look real quick at a couple of passages that emphasize this. First of all, just hold your place there in Matthew chapter 5. We'll come back to it. But turn over to the book of Proverbs in the Old Testament. Proverbs chapter 4. And when you get to Proverbs chapter 4, I want you to look down at about verse 23. Proverbs chapter 4 and verse 23. And here's what we find. Watch over your heart with all diligence. For from it flows the springs of life. And then he goes on to talk about put away the deceitfulness from your mouth. And he continues to exhort. But that's where he begins. Take a look at that. Watch over your heart with all diligence. Because it's out of that heart 
It's out of that inner person that the issues of life come. Uh, another passage that really speaks to the heart, the inner person being the key to everything, is in Matthew chapter 15. So let's go back to Matthew, and this time just flip over to Matthew chapter 15. And when you get there, you'll want to look down at about verse, uh, about verse 15. Matthew chapter 15, verse 17 rather. Matthew chapter 15, verse 17. Uh, Peter speaks to Jesus and he asks in verse 15 for Jesus to explain a particular parable. And, uh, And Jesus says to him in verse 16, Are you still lacking in understanding also? And then notice what he says in verse 17. Do you not understand that everything that goes into the mouth and passes into the stomach is eliminated? But the things that proceed out of the mouth come from the heart. And those defile the man. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witnesses, and slanders. These are the things which defile the man. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile the man. And so there Jesus even emphasizes that principle that the key to to who we are as a person is in the heart. And so when the writer of Proverbs says to us, we need to be really careful about cultivating the inner person, uh, then we can really understand it. This is where Jesus says, this is what it's all about. Who you are outwardly has already been determined by by what you are inwardly. You know, a lot of times people talk about, uh, they see something happen, uh, somebody does something completely unexpected to them, And they might say, it came completely out of nowhere. Uh, It's not that person. Uh, We we never saw anything that would indicate that he or she was that kind of person. We never saw it. Uh, To be real honest with you, uh, behavior doesn't just creep up. It, It starts, Scripture says, in the heart. And so when a behavior manifests itself and it just comes out, uh, you can be rest assured that uh, there wasn't due diligence in protecting the heart. It's a struggle. It is a struggle because of the brokenness within us, the sinfulness. But that's why the writer of Proverbs says we've got to give diligence. I mean, that word diligence tells us something really important. It's going to take work. You don't just accidentally protect your heart. You don't just kind of wander in or stumble into a protected heart. It's something that you've got to be thinking about. It's something that you have to intentionally pursue. It's something that you've got to be real purposeful about guarding that heart. So going back to Matthew chapter 5 then, where he says, Fortunate are the pure in heart. What in the world is he talking about when he's talking about the pure in heart? There's actually a couple of possibilities. Uh, Some say what he's talking about is inner purity, uh, inner virtue. That he's saying the person who is, is pure and committed to moral excellence inside, they are in a fortunate position. Others say, no, I think what Jesus is talking about more is a single-minded commitment to Him. Uh, 
Because sometimes this word pure, when it's used in the New Testament, it's used of metal that has been refined. Uh, and all of the impurities taken out. So it's absolutely pure. It's not mixed with anything else. And so some people say, well, that's, that's kind of the idea here, that our devotion to Christ has to be unmixed. It has to be pure. Our devotion has to be single-minded. Well, what, well, what is it? Is it inner moral goodness or is it single-minded devotion? I think the answer is probably both. When he talks about being pure in heart, I think both ideas are there. And so uh, let's just talk a little bit about both of these uh, ideas uh, of pureness, inner moral purity and also single-minded devotion. Let's first of all talk about the need for inner moral purity. This is a theme, being, being pure in the inner person is such an important theme in Scripture. God wants the inner person. That is emphasized over and over and over and over. God is not just interested in someone going through some motions, going through empty mechanical ritual. God has never been interested in that. He's not interested in it now, and He'll never be interested in it. God wants the entire person from the inside out. Let's take a look at a few scriptures where we'll really see that emphasized. Turn over to Matthew chapter 23, first of all. So go to Matthew chapter 23 toward the end of the book. Uh, and when you get there, we'll want to go down to about verse 25. In this section here of Matthew chapter 23, Jesus is really coming down hard on the Pharisees. Now one of the things, interestingly enough, that he's going to say, he'll actually say it in just a few verses in Matthew chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, he says, our righteousness has to exceed or surpass that of the Pharisees. And the word surpass, when he uses it, is a picture of a, of a, of a river that's overflowing its banks. He says, we've got to go way beyond the righteous model that's set by the Pharisees. Well, what was the righteous model of the Pharisees? What was their model of righteousness? Well, basically it was going through the right external rituals at the right time. They believed that as long as they got the externals right, Nothing else really mattered. That was part of their model of righteousness. And so internally, they could be corrupt. Uh, they could be morally depraved. But that didn't matter. As long as they were going through the right external rituals, in their mind, that's all that God was interested in. And so what Jesus does when He gets over into chapter 23 of Matthew... He really comes down hard on them because of this kind of model of false righteousness. And if you look at his description beginning in verse 25, all through the chapter here is this repeated series of woes. Woe to them in their hypocrisy. Uh, by the way, you'll see that word hypocrites a lot, and you'll see it in verse 25. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Uh, the word hypocrite in Jesus' day, it really wasn't a... A bad word. It doesn't have any good connotation now. It's all bad. But in Jesus' day, it wasn't all bad. It was actually their word for an actor. When we call someone an actor, uh, oh, he's a Hollywood actor. Uh, the word actor or actress isn't a bad word. It just describes their profession. They act like different people. Uh, that's, this is the first century Roman word for an actor. 
And so that's what Jesus is saying. He's calling the Pharisees, they're actors. They're just playing a part. And that's really setting up the idea that they act like they are committed to God, but internally they're not. And so here in verse 25 of chapter 23, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, you actors! For you clean the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside they are full of robbery and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and of the dish, so that the outside may become clean also. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside appear beautiful, but inside they are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. A couple of pretty graphic images that they could really identify with, and we could even really identify with. This picture of a, you open up the cabinet, and you're going to get a, a bowl out, and, uh, and, and you take it out, and it looks great. It looks fine. It looks like it's been washed. It looks clean. And then if you pulled it out, and you look inside, and it's just kind of crusted over with old food and all, it would just kind of be a repulsive thing. You wouldn't want to eat out of that. He said, that's what you're like. Outside, when people see you from the outside, man, you look holy. You look great. Uh, you're kind of the envy of people. People talk about you and say, I wish I was like him. I wish I were like her. Uh, they have it together in their life. They have obviously this great relationship with God. From the outside, that's what people are saying. But Jesus says, I know what's inside. If they could just open you up and look inside, uh, that relationship with God isn't there. God hasn't transformed your heart inwardly. You don't have a commitment to Christ. Uh, inwardly, you're not drawn to Him. Uh, inwardly, you don't seek to understand His will and submit yourself to it. Inwardly, you're following the impulses of the flesh. You just look good from the outside. And then that other image that He uses of the tombs, the tombs that would be so elaborate, and they would be carved, and, and they would be beautiful, and uh, and and... And, and there's, a, there's a whole hillside in Jerusalem. And, and, and most people think that it was, uh, it was there that Jesus actually made this point. You can go there and there's tombs that date back far beyond the time of Christ that dot the hill on the eastern side of the, uh, uh, of the, of the walls, the retaining walls of the old Temple Mount in Jerusalem, just as you're going down in what's called the Kidron Valley and you go up onto the Mount of Olives. And there's these tombs there. And some of them are so incredibly elaborate. And again, a lot of them date before the time of Christ. And it's a real possibility that he was looking at those. And they looked so beautiful. And people come and make sure they're well taken care of and that they're well maintained and that they're painted and, and they just look so good. But inside, when you would walk inside any kind of tomb, the stench and the rot. And he says, that's what you're like. That's what it means so they had, this, they had this appearance of external piety and purity, but they didn't have inner purity. And Jesus is emphasizing that God wants inner transformation. Now, like I said, that's something that God has always demanded. You don't just see it here in the Old Te New Testament, but you even see it throughout the Old Testament. Let's go back to the book of Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 21. 
Let's take a look at a couple of passages in the book of Proverbs and see that same emphasis. God wants inner transformation. Proverbs chapter 21, verse 3. To do righteousness and justice is desired by the Lord more than sacrifice. Now I want to read that again. To do righteousness and justice is desired by the Lord more than sacrifice. You know, a lot of people read this and, uh, and they actually come to some very wrong conclusions. Sometimes passages like this are taken completely out of context. Some people read this and they go, Aha! See, Jesus really doesn't care about sacrifices. He doesn't care about how you worship Him. He's not interested in that. You worship any way. God doesn't desire sacrifice. All He wants is this transformed life that's reflected and manifested in, in being righteous and being just and being morally excellent. That's all that God cares about. And if you got that down, the sacrifices, God's really not interested in that. That's not what the passage says. This passage has to be read in the fuller context of the Old Testament. The fact of the matter is, God did care about how they approached Him and worshipped Him. The fact of the matter is, God gave them careful instructions uh, for how they were to approach and worship Him. The fact of the matter is, God was very meticulous when He laid out not only the details of the temple physically, but all the services of the temple. God cared about those things. We have to understand, we have to read this. We can't rip it out of the Old Testament and kind of let it sit there all by itself. We have to let it, the, other, the rest of the Old Testament inform the meaning here. So he's not saying God doesn't care about sacrifice. What he's saying is this. God doesn't care about your sacrifice if the inner man is not transformed. That's what he's saying. What he's saying is this. If your character inside, if what you are inside is not producing an external reflection of the character of God, God's not interested in what you're offering Him. The idea was this, the people of the Israel would often come to Jerusalem and they would bring their sacrifices and they would bring their offerings, but they were so corrupt, their hearts hadn't been transformed. They were like the Pharisees. They were pretty on the outside, but they were full of rotting bones on the inside. They were like the cup that looked so clean in the cupboard, but when you looked inside it, it was just encrusted with old food. That's how they were. And the writer here of Proverbs is saying, no, God wants both. He's not just interested in some empty mechanical rituals. He wants transformation from within. Now that idea again is expressed over and over and over again. Let's take a look at another passage in the Old Testament. It's in the book of Amos. You'll find it in the Minor Prophets, of course. The book of Amos. Chapter 5 is where you'll want to be. Amos is prophesying. He's what we call an 8th century prophet. Prophesying in the 700s B.C., about 700, uh, between 700 and 800 years before the time of Jesus. And as he's prophesying, things are really bad in Israel. Uh, uh, the people of God, uh, they have always struggled with idolatry. We're going to get to single-minded devotion in a minute. And boy, did they struggle with single-minded devotion. Uh, and you can see that expressed here in the book of Amos. Uh, we'll actually look at also a minute, in a minute the book of Isaiah. But look at Amos chapter 5 and get down at about verse 21. God says this through the prophet to the people. 
I hate, I reject your festivals, nor do I delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer up to me burnt offerings and your grain offerings, I will not accept them. And I will not even look at the peace offerings of your fatlings. Take away from me the noise of your songs. I will not even listen to the sound of your harps. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. See, they're still going through the external motions of worship. They're still recognizing the feasts. They're still recognizing the festivals. They're still going to the temple. They're still doing all of the external details. And, but there's a problem. And the problem is what they are internally. And they just haven't gotten the fact that God's interested in them internally as well as what they offer externally. He wants the whole person. And so he tells them down in verse 24, let justice roll down water and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. You've got to change. You've got to change. Well, that's talking about externals. That's not talking about internals, Dan. Uh, Remember what we looked at? The heart, the inward heart, the inner person is the key to the externals. The externals are a reflection of what's internal. When Jesus says, let righteousness and let justice, let these things flow, flow down like streams. Let them pour like rivers. He understands that he's talking about a transformation inside that will produce that kind of lifestyle, a reflection of the character of God. One more, the book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 1. Very similar words that you find in Isaiah chapter 1 as you find there in Amos chapter 5. When you get to Isaiah chapter 1, verse 11 is where we're going to start. Here's what he says. What are your multiplied sacrifices to me, says the Lord? I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed cattle. And I take no pleasure in the blood of bulls, lambs, or goats. When you come to appear before me, who requires of you this trampling of my courts? Bring your worthless offerings no longer. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath, the calling of assemblies. I cannot endure iniquity and the solemn assembly. Note that. I cannot endure iniquity and the solemn assembly. I hate your new moon festivals and your appointed feasts. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. So when you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Yes, even though you multiply prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are covered with blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil deeds from my, your evil deeds from my sight. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Reprove the ruthless. Defend the orphan. Plead for the widow. They were going to church. They were doing all the right stuff. All the externals were just right. The problem wasn't the externals. The problem was the internal. The problem was a lack of purity in the inner person. 
that resulted in behavior that was excellent morally and that reflected the character of God. It was terrible. We kind of describe it. If we put this in modern terms, in kind of a church setting, uh, we, we describe it this way. Let me, I, I'd say it this way. God doesn't care. If you haven't been transformed internally, if God doesn't control you inwardly, if you don't open up your heart to God and the inner person to let Him transform you inside, He doesn't care if you come to church. You don't get any points for that. If you're a moral rebel when you leave this building and you just let the impulses of the flesh direct your life every single day, He doesn't care if you're here every time the doors open. You don't get points for that. And you don't get points for just singing when the congregation sings. And you don't get points when the Lord's Supper goes by and you partake. And you don't get points when you drop something in the collection plate. And even if you miss a Sunday and you come back the next Sunday and you double up, you don't get points for that. If inwardly your heart is far from God, that's the New Testament equivalent of Isaiah chapter 1. That's the New Testament equivalent of Amos chapter 5. That's the New Testament equivalent of Proverbs 21 and verse 3. God has always wanted His people from the inside. Does the outside matter? Yeah, it matters. Of course it matters. But it doesn't matter if the inside hasn't been transformed. That's why at the very beginning, at the very beginning of Jesus talking about life in the kingdom in the Sermon on the Mount, it's all about internal attitudes it's talking about mercy. Uh, it, it's talking about purity. Uh, it's talking about all of those things. It's talking about being poor in spirit, which I'm sure you already know. Poor in spirit is referring to an, a, a constant sense that apart from God, we are totally hopeless. That we are completely, we are completely bankrupt spiritually without God. That we can do absolutely nothing without Him. Uh, blessed are those that mourn. That's this inner spirit of grieving our sinfulness, of recognizing that we are so broken. We are so infected with sin. It's a constant recognition and awareness of that. Because it's in that constant recognition and awareness of sin that we constantly run to Jesus Christ because we realize there's no one else to whom we can go. That it's not through our own heroic actions and deeds that we have any hope at all. We grieve our sins. We're always aware of them. They're ever before. We're like Paul when he says, it's a trustworthy statement that Jesus Christ came to save sinners of whom I am the worst of all. Paul says, I am, not I was the worst, I am the worst. That's a man who's conscious of his sin. See, all of these are internal attitudes. And so when he begins in, in the Sermon on the Mount talking about what is life in the kingdom look like, notice it all starts right there with this inner transformation of the person. 
You want to be in a favored position with God? You want to be in a fortunate position with God? You want to be in an enviable position? A transformation of your heart. God wants your heart. When God has your heart, when the will of God and the desires of God and the character of God shape your motives and shape your thinking and shape your will, you are in a fortunate position. Now real quickly I said there's really two things that I think pure in heart is referring to. One's that inner moral purity. God wants that. Uh, the second is this idea of this single-minded devotion to God. God has always wanted His people's heart completely. Double-mindedness, some people call it. Double-mindedness has always plagued the people of God. It was a problem for God's people in Old Testament times. It's a problem for God's people now. Turn to Matthew chapter 6, just one chapter over. Look down about verse 24. Jesus says, No one can serve two masters, for either, either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God in wealth. You can't do it. You can't serve two. You, you can only have one master. You remember Luke chapter 18? Luke chapter 18 is one of the more familiar stories in all of the New Testament about discipleship because in that chapter we have a, a young man who comes to Jesus and he's extremely wealthy and he asks Jesus the question, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus points him to the commandments. And, uh, and the young man says this uh, in verse 21, all these things I have kept from my youth. A lot of people think that sounds really arrogant. But I don't think he was being arrogant at all. What he was simply saying was, I really have been spiritually sensitive. I've always been spiritually sensitive, Jesus. Jesus, I've always been interested in following God. I've always wanted to know God, to be close to God, to respect God, to honor God. Uh, and he was genuinely inquiring about eternal life. And Jesus said to him, Well, there's one thing that you still lack. Go sell all that you possess, distribute it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. And verse 23 says, But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. A lot of times when people read that, they get the impression that this, this young man's heart never really was with God, that he was one of those hypocrites. Because if he would have loved God, then he would have done what Jesus said. I don't think that's right. I don't think he was a hypocrite. When he came to Jesus seeking eternal life, I really believe there's nothing in the text that suggests he wasn't deeply sincere. And when he said, all these things I've done since I was a young man, there's nothing. Jesus doesn't question that. I'm not going to question it. I think, he's, I think he's telling the truth. He's always been sensitive to God. No, he wasn't a hypocrite. I actually think he loved God. Wait a minute. How can you say that he loved God? Well, because you can actually love God and love something else. Uh, you can love more than one thing. You know, I remember when I was a young man once, I was probably about 20 at the time, and I was trying to understand life. And, uh, and I remember asking my dad once we were standing around, I said, hey, Dad, can I ask you a question? And uh, he was, sure. I said, is it possible to fall in love with more than one woman? And he goes, absolutely. He said, of course it is. He said, it happens all the time. That's how affairs happen. Uh, it, you can love more than one at a time. The thing is, though, you can't love them equally. And when Jesus talks about you'll love one and hate the other, He's using language 
very common among the Jews, this love and hate language. What it means is that you love one more than another. Uh, we read about, for instance, in Romans chapter 9 where uh, God hated Esau, but He loved Jacob. He didn't literally hate Esau. Uh, uh, it's just that He preferred Jacob for His plan. In Genesis chapter 29, it, it says that Jacob, uh, when God saw that Leah, you know, Jacob had two wives, Rachel and Leah, and it said when God saw that Leah was hated, that's literal, but, but that's not what it meant. It meant he loved Rachel more, uh, Jacob did. You can love more than one thing. But the problem is, and this young man, Jesus knew it because Jesus is a mind reader. God, Jesus knew that he actually loved, he did love God, but God wasn't first place in his heart. And Jesus shows him that there's actually something else that's first place in your heart. You may love God, but God's not first place in your heart. And Jesus showed him that. Listen, God wants first place in our heart. That's what pure in heart does mean. That's one of the things it means. Not just that inner purity, but God also wants to be absolutely number one in your heart. You know, I'm doing a series at Concord Road right now. In fact, on Sunday morning, we're talking about counterfeit gods and all these things that are good things that if we're not careful, they become God things and that makes them bad things. And so, uh, uh, God wants total first place in our hearts. Well, then how do we become clean heart? I know we got just a couple of minutes here and that's it. Uh, I'm just going to real quickly give you about four things, but we can't, don't have time to look at any passages to support it. First of all, ask God to give you a pure heart. David prays in that Psalm 51 and verse 10, created me a clean heart of God. Never stop asking God. It should be a regular part of your prayer life to pray and ask God to help you have a pure heart. Uh, help you cultivate inner moral purity help you cultivate single-minded devotion to God. A second thing, control your thoughts. You know, Paul says in Philippians chapter 4 and verse 8, things that are good, things that are right, things that are holy, these are the things that we need to pour into our mind. These are the things that we need to think about. These are the things that we need to contemplate. It is so tough. It, it is so tough. In fact, it is impossible to completely control our thinking. We're dragging around these old unredeemed bodies and we're always struggling with sin, just like Paul says he does in Romans chapter 7. But nevertheless, we need to seek to control our thoughts and pour good things into us. Stop living according to the flesh. Colossians chapter 3 and verse 5 talks about uh, always having this consciousness that we are dead to sin. Remind yourself of who you are. You've been raised with Christ. You're a new person. You just can't go on living like you, don't, uh, uh, like you didn't know Jesus Christ. And finally, walk by the Spirit. That's Galatians chapter 5 and verse 16. And when we understand that it's through the Spirit that we gain the knowledge of the will of God and insight into ourselves through the Word, that means spend a lot of time in the Word. It's getting close to God. It's reveling in God. It's immersing ourselves in God. In the Word of God. Those things to help us have that purity of heart so that we will ultimately see God. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful for the few minutes that we've had tonight to talk about You, Your will for us. Lord, we do want to see You ultimately. We see You by faith now, but we long for that day when we'll really see You in heaven. And Father, we know that You have some real expectations for us, that You've set the bar high. 
not to discourage us, but you want to help develop us and help us become and uh, what you want us to be and help us reach our fullest spiritual potential. And so, Lord, I pray that we'll all here seek to have pure hearts, that we'll renew our commitment to cultivating a pure heart. And we just ask you, Lord, to help us in that quest to be pure of heart, to cultivate inner moral purity and a single-minded commitment to you to make you first place give you first place in our hearts. And it's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.